All right, everybody, thank you. Uh, another episode of the Praying Man podcast. We are uh, on site uh, uh, with one Mr. John Sharps, owner of Sharps Bros. Now, I, I heard this on another podcast. Do you say bros or brothers? I say bros. Bros? Yeah, yeah. I have a brother, but I named the business after my boys. Okay. Just trying to create something that, you know, when I first came out with a, my first product was this receiver called Hellbreaker. It's modeled after a P-40 Warhawk. And at the time, you know, it's kind of hard to have a business if you just have one product, you know. Mm-hmm. Having a single product is not really a business. And But I knew I wanted to get into it for the long haul, and there was no other, like, the way that came across to me is the best way to make sure there's longevity here is if I name it after two kids <laughs> that are, you know, at the time, like, f- three and five. Mm-hmm. Um Try and set it up so that maybe someday one or both of them can yeah. work in the business, you know. So I named it Bros. Yeah, well, with cool. kids of very similar age, I think Hellbreakers uh, appropriately. <laughs> so, all right, quick introductions. Uh, you, if you've listened to us before, uh, I'm Jake Siegel. We got Nate Bailey here and John Sharp. So uh, we're man down. Johnny uh, Johnny Aloysius Eastburn Jr. the third is. He's out sick, unfortunately, and uh, it's too bad because, you know, a lot of times we do our, our podcasts, uh, um, you know, just, just with, with ourselves, and, and uh, this time we actually got to come over to John's place and sit down with him, and he has got a very nice man cave. <laughs> it is. Yeah, my <laughs> wife calls this place the Garage Mahal. Yeah. <laughs> That's sort of how we set it up. When we were building it, we actually said, when we were designing it, I said to my wife at the time, I'm like... You know, she's still my wife, but at the time I said, <laughs> at the time I said, you know, there's never been a guy that was like, you know, I wish I would have made my shop just a little bit smaller. Right. <laughs> it's never been that no. way, you know, so true. we went big on this one. So yeah, it'll hold a boat and car and wood shop and. Yeah. And, no, it's uh, rad. You get guns. This is, this is jealousy level high. So, yes. all right. So uh, to anybody that's listening, so if you listen to our podcast, if you're familiar with um, the stuff that we've done in the past, if you follow us on social media, a lot of stuff you see that we do is we, we, we bow hunt a lot, we fish a lot, you know, fly fishing, generally just try to be outdoors. One thing we haven't touched on um, in the past has been uh, rifles, firearms, um, but luckily John is local and has made a hell of a name for himself on the firearm side of things. So um, just because a lot of our audience is used to um, archery stuff and uh, archery reviews and fishing and and uh, hunting stuff, just give us, a, just tell us, you know, how you, you know, if you met me on the street and you say, hey, you know, what's Sharps Brothers all about? Just sure. tell us. Sure. Well, Sharps Bros, we're focused on the AR platform or what I would call the modern sporting rifle platform. Um, and we make some really unique products that are, really different from from anything else that's out there. So we bring a little bit of um, artwork, form and functionality artwork, uh, to the AR platform. So we have these sort of crazy designs. Uh, our most popular one is called the Jack. It's a skull design that is shaped around the lower receiver of an AR-15. And most of our sales is just selling to guys that are build-your-own types. Um, so we'll buy a stripped receiver from us and... Uh, maybe buy an upper receiver from us and put a barrel from someone else and stock and everything from other people, scope from other people, and put their own rifle together. Mm-hmm. The um, the AR is really sort of like modern-day Legos in a way. Let, they're, 
the AR platform has this military specification or this mil spec standard um, that everyone holds to. And because everyone holds to this mil spec standard, um, you can build a rifle that is made from 10 or more different parts. Or if you have an AR-15 and you're safe right now that you haven't used in a while and you want to pull it out, you can um, take the receiver out of it and swap it out with one of ours and make it almost like a brand new rifle at that point. Okay. So that's sort of the people that we're catering to. And they're people that like to shoot for fun, people that hunt with ARs, um, and people that use them for defense, all kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. So here's what I'll tell anybody that's listening, and and we'll do, um, I think we'll do a a video version of this, but we'll just throw some some, uh, stills of your stuff as we're talking so people can kind of get an idea of what they're looking at just from your website. But I will tell you right now, um, if you're listening to this, I would strongly recommend you hit pause just for a second and go to Sharps, is it sharpsbros.com? Yeah, sharpsbros.com. Yeah, check it out. It'll give you pretty quickly, you'll see mm-hmm. You'll see what we're about. Exactly, exactly. So um, uh, I would say for those of you who are listening and don't have a chance to jump over to the website, um, could you explain, you see the Hellbreaker was your first design. Mm-hmm. Could yeah. you just, you know, I think you can app the amount of hours you have behind that thing. Just explain it the best you can and the Genesis behind it and, and where you came up with the idea. Sure. Well, I was living in Seattle at the time and uh, my kids were very young and um, I was doing some technical diving in Lake Washington up there. So in Seattle, they have a couple uh, freshwater lakes. One of them is Lake Washington and it used to have on its shores a, a naval air station. That naval air station is now called Magnuson Park, and it's like a dog park now. You know, but <laughs> go for it. Um, used to be a, in World War II time frame. It was a naval air station, and um, over the course of those World War II years, they had seven World War II aircraft crash into Lake Washington, and those with Lake Washington being really cold and also fresh water. Um, and them not going after those planes at the time, they're still sitting at the bottom of that lake. Really? And I've always had a, an exploration gene and, and really wanted to start diving and seeing some of those things. And uh, spent a bunch of time, uh, even discovered one lost plane that was um, in Lake Washington and had not been found since, since it crashed in 1944. Really? Um, That's awesome. So you found it? You, yeah, you, yeah. Uh, we used side scan sonar. I, like I went back and found, uh, I found the military record of when it crashed. It was a TBF one Avenger. I found military record of when it crashed, and I went back to the Seattle library and pulled out microfilm from the newspaper of that time. And I actually thought to myself, like, well, you know, a plane crashed in Lake Washington. This is going to be front page news. You know, it's yeah. going to be super easy to find. But by the time I found it in the paper, and I did. I was able to find it. It was like, you know, if you consider what was going on at the time, it was like minor news. And someone died in the crash. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, but it was maybe page six, and it was one small paragraph. And uh, But in the paragraph, it said, you know, such and such eyewitness. At, and in those days, they actually listed out the person's address, <laughs> saw it from her living room window, and described yeah. the following, you know. <laughs> so I mapped out where her house was, and then I had a friend that was in side scan sonar business which is sort of like you know you're familiar with fish sonar yeah well they do that they'll they'll tow a fish behind and get really accurate pictures of the lake bottom Mm -hmm. 
And I know someone who does that as full-time work. And uh, I was like, man, can we pull this fish out in this one little area? Because I'm pretty sure there's going to be a plane there and within like two hours. We're we're looking at a World War II airplane on the, oh, on that's the sonar, cool. like treasure hunters all. Yeah, it was. Nice. You know, like treasure hunters, and like you can't take anything off those wrecks, but they, a lot of them, still have the 50 cal machine guns mounted to the to them, and they're really, you know, this one was I think 165 feet deep, so you have to use the wow. helium oxygen mixture to get down there, which makes them sort of inaccessible, and they don't actually even worry about no, you know. Someone stealing the yeah. firearms because you can't just get down. Plus nobody get knew it was there exactly. Or yeah. You didn't know where it was. So, yeah. That's deep enough. You probably weren't worried about somebody stumbling on it either. Yeah. So, believe it or not, that's the long story of how that's the, the beginning of how I got into this business. Where one rainy Saturday, uh, we had just dove a Corsair that's in the lake the day before. And it was rainy, and the, you know, we we're wanting to get the kids out of the house feeling cooped up. And so, uh, my wife and I took them to the Seattle Air and Space Museum. And as we were walking to, to find a Corsair, we went past this P-40 Warhawk that says, you know, it was uh, branded O'Reilly's Daughter was the name of the plane. And it was the, had the, um, the tiger or shark face painted on. And I just said to my wife at the time, I'm like, you know, someone should put that on a lower receiver. And at the time, people were laser engraving things, but no one was actually making it part of the design. You know? Right. And I just had this idea to to make it part of the design. And I had a full-time job at the time, and I did for years after we launched it. I just kept sort of chipping away at trying to figure it out. And I had friends that were could help me with the solid modeling and um, just spent years sort of trying to refine this first receiver. And then once I had one finding a customer for it you know and then once i had a customer for it just started coming out with more and more yeah. designs you know what was the reaction i mean you know you're very you were very close to this project obviously so you were probably how many hundreds of hours into it who knows you know so yeah. it was a bit of an old hat by the time you produced it to somebody like, what was the reaction when you... Well, you know, the reaction was, was super mixed, to be honest. Like, in my early days, or really anyone that is not used to taking critical feedback, like, this is at least my experience. Like, if you're not used to taking critical feedback, you can hear nine compliments and one negative thing, and you sort of <laughs> over-index on the negative thing. Sure. Well, when I was sort of trying to figure out, do I have something here that people will buy or not? You know, I would post pictures of just the solid model before I even had one made. I'd post pictures of the solid model to forums, you know, AR-related forums. And man, like almost instantly the feedback was overwhelmingly positive or overwhelmingly mm. negative. And it was like 50-50. Yeah. And some people were taking time out of their day to like research my email address and send me, you know, really crappy mail about <laughs> what a horrible person I must be. How dare you? You know, well. because we were doing something that was just no one had ever seen anything like it right you know it's 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 like a modern day version of um adorning your weapon really but we're yeah. just putting it right into the machine yeah. work and um and i i i sort of over indexed for a while on that negative feedback just thinking like gosh you know is this a good idea or not i maybe it's not you know maybe maybe i shouldn't pursue this but eventually where i settled was based on what i was seeing which was 
the people that were posting the negative things about it would actually like help me market this thing because they would post to Facebook, like, can you believe this? <laughs> you know, oh, yeah. and like, you know, sarcastic uh, negative tone. Yeah. And, you know, half their friends would agree with them and half their friends would be like, oh, you know, I don't know. Actually, that's kind of cool. I think I would buy that. Yeah. Still gets more eyeballs on it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I sort of settled out as like anything that drives a ton of passion for or against um, can be really positive for, yeah. for sales. Yeah. Okay. So I want to back up just real quick because one thing that I learned from being in the archery industry is that sometimes we we just we give we, we assume people know more than what they know, even the basics. Sure. And even admittedly, I don't know a lot about guns and I sure enjoy shooting them. And, you know, but when it gets to the nitty gritty, I really, you know, I'm going to be blank faced for sure. So, um, just to, again, if you're listening to, to describe kind of what you have. So the receiver is the, the lower part, basically where the, if you can think of an AR, um, where the, uh, trigger and safety and everything that, that, that house the trigger and safety. Right. And, Okay, so the magazine is is machined out in this intricate, you know, and, and one thing, like, if you're thinking, like, to your point, people will take laser engraving, and a lot of people are, are familiar with laser engraving, whether it's, like, a dog collar or something where somebody's laser engraved, you know, Fido's name into some metal, right? Yeah. So this is to the point where it has depth. It is actually machined into yeah. the aluminum. We start with a solid block of aluminum, right. seventy seventy five aluminum, and we we machine um, you know a piece of artwork out of that, and that artwork happens to hold a trigger and a safety selector, and happens to fit with any other AR fifteen part that's out there. Um, and so we we don't sell full rifles, but the actually the receiver part, the part that does hold the trigger, the part that we make is what the ATF considers the firearm, so it gets serialized. Um, and so though we don't sell anything uh, currently that, you know, you can take out of the box and fire around with, um, we certainly sell a lot of firearms. Yeah. yeah. But that's what, as far as ARs are, con- like that platform, that's what most people want to do is they want to build one, correct? For the most well, part? Well, I mean, you get both, you know, you guys that we sell them, our biggest customer, our biggest volume goes out as strip sales, guys that want to pick out their own trigger, pick out their own safety selector, um, pick out all their own parts. You know, when you're building a rifle, um, it's not unlike a bow where you're like, you know, you're picking out your grip or not that you're building a bow at home, but if you look at a bow, you know, you've got your cams and you got all these different little parts. Same kind of thing with with an AR, except you can go to a a distributor or um, a retailer and buy all those parts and bring it home and assemble it yourself, you know, with with not very much instruction, honestly. Yeah, and when, when people are buying your products, they're, even though they're getting other pieces and parts, essentially, I mean, that's the core, the center of the firearm. Basically. Yeah, the so whole firearm is around built around your, what we your make. Piece, yeah. Yep, yeah. Cool. Yeah. Well, you talk about assembling everything. Can you talk a little bit about how, how realistic is it for average Joe to, to assemble their own? Oh, it's super realistic. You, you If you haven't done it, and you and you like firearms at all, you should do it um, because it's it's really satisfying, you know. And um, there are plenty of YouTube videos out there that will sort of, or even DVDs that you can buy that sort of walk you through step by step and doesn't take a crazy amount of tools. Um, yeah, that was that. Was, I think that was going to be my next question: is is how a lot of people say 
man, I'm just overwhelmed. You know, there are a lot of different options for all of these different components. Like, where do I start? Yeah. Like, how, well, how do we even go about starting? If you wanted to try building your own, the way I would suggest it is you can buy the entire upper receiver, which is the part that holds the, the bolt carrier group. It has the barrel. It has the handguard. You can buy those built. Um, and if you're, and that's really where, in the upper receiver, where all the accuracy is happening, all the um, the extreme chamber pressuring is all happening in the upper receiver, and then just build the lower receiver. Um, and the lower receiver is a really great place to start because um, most everything. Well, I'm trying to think through. Like everything is really drop in, you know, add these threaded screws here. Uh, press this spring and detent in, and okay. it's more of like it's pretty easy to to okay. watch, you know, a one-hour video and be able to see how you could do it for yourself. And and then when you do it for yourself, you you get exactly you know what you're after. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are so many selections in the AR space to to really truly make something your own. And and when you take it to the range, you're like, yeah, no, I built this. Yeah, you know, and it and you have this extra level of understanding about every piece of its functionality because you you put it together you know I w- I'll be one of the first to say like you know I spent time uh, working with you guys and um, I still pr- can I don't have the equipment to to you know change out my limbs for example you know I would have to take it into Bowtech and do that but and the AR side like it's not like that you know you can do this stuff in your garage okay you know? that's good information I think I think it's just intimidating um, and again, I mean, there was a time where, you know, I couldn't tie my peep side in or, yeah. you know, tie a loop. And Here's what I would say. It, yeah, Working on your bow is <laughs> way more intimidating than building an AR. Way mm-hmm. more. And I think it's, I think working on a bow is harder. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's good news for anybody that's listening. Cause I, I would, I would imagine if you kind of, if you approached the average, just outdoorsman, like, yeah, you know, like, yeah, I shot a bow once and I've shot some guns. And you pose that question, would you feel more comfortable, you know, working on your bow or building an AR? Most would be like, I'll work on my bow any day. Yeah, well, (laughs) it just depends, you know, like probably in your circle, it's probably, you would probably hear the bow. Exactly. In mine, it'd be different. Like like I've got bows down there. Like I was just telling you, I was like wanting to change out limbs. And it's like, I'm going to have to take it to Bowtech to do that (laughs) or over to your place. Right. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I feel a swap happening here. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So I, I mean, I can't. The amount, so I, I guess one of the things that struck me, so you do, I, I know, you know, a little bit before we turn the mics on, you know, we talk a little bit about the size of your, your business and your company and everything, but as far as the marketing and the, uh, the I can't stress enough the aesthetics of your pieces. Like, it, they are, to Nate's point, I mean, they're, they're pieces of art, really. I mean, so you obviously have an art gene, you know, maybe, yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, so as far as your design work, I mean, sketching it out, I mean, is that something that, and again, you think of ARs and artists and the way, you know, a piece of art, you know, something yeah. would flow. You don't really put those things together a lot. But, I mean, your stuff is really, I mean, it's, it's I, l- I it's like gorgeous. to think of them as functional pieces of art, right. you know? Yeah. I mean, and people, when they buy our receivers, they honestly are spending five or six times as much as they might on the, the cheapest receiver that would be out there if they were building a rifle. Like you can, you can find some receivers out there for 40 or 50 bucks. And most of my stuff is, you know, 289 or something like that, you know? And so you are buying a very unique piece of 
um, of artwork. Very functional, badass artwork. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> but, you know, I, I also like to think of, or say at least, or I've said this a few times, I guess, over, over the years, that people have been adorning their weapons since they were throwing spears, you know, or, or the original flinging of arrows, you know. They were, they were decorating their bows, and they were decorating their arrows. And what we're doing is really is, is the modern-day version of that. You know, we're using very expensive CNC equipment to hog out these sculptures um, out of solid blocks of aluminum. Um, but at the end of the day, it's um, it's not much different than what men have and and people with weapons have been doing since the very beginning. Yeah. Well, it's funny too. Uh, I mean, most I think uh, even the 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 most grizzled, you know, woodsman and and uh, you know, maybe veteran will, you know, maybe in public would be saying, you know, like, ah, you know, I don't care what it looks like as long as it shoots good. But I mean, I think deep down, like if you have the option to put your own twist on it, yeah, they're going to do it. You know, we, we get all kinds, you know, certainly we've had some really good sales over the years. So that tells me there's a lot of people that do like to build it their own and they like to have something that's really unique. Um, and it, it will, without a doubt, if you build a rifle off of one of our receivers, it will, without a doubt, be the most unique rifle you have in your safe. Mm -hmm. um, it would, it's just impossible to beat, really. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of people that it's just it's not their flavor. You know, yeah. And that's, that's fine. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> the haters that's out fine, there. You know? Your promoters. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Well, speaking of that, I mean, we, we all come from hunting heritage and everything, too. And... And I'm, I'll admit I'm guilty of this as well. It's like I've never really thought about getting into the AR platform. And the more we talk with you and learn about it, I get definitely more intrigued about, you know, build your own aspect. But um, one common perception is that it, the AR platform doesn't have a place in the in the hunting realm. And so I think a lot of people don't don't think about an AR platform or an MSR platform sure. or aren't interested in it because of that. But, um, yeah, so it'd be good to, for you to take pictures of this room that we're sitting in, which is surrounded <laughs> by heads and stuff. So yeah, I mean, up on the wall, we have two, you know, massive hogs, both were 250 pound hogs. Both my sons took at pretty young ages, uh, 12 and 11 at the time. Um, both shot with a 300 blackout, which is a, a 30 caliber, round that's made for the AR-15. Um, we just, uh, all of us just came back from Wyoming. We took antelope with ARs. So it, it just, nice. it's sort of whatever perspective people may have. They may have this perspective that it's just a 5.56 military caliber, you know, for punching holes in paper. Um, or that it's got a big fat, you know, 30 round clip in there. And like, you know, they make five round clips um, for the AR, and that's what we hunt with. And they make, there's many different calibers, um, great calibers for the AR-15 platform. So you have this lightweight rifle platform um, that can have calibers, like some of our favorite ones. So we've taken hog with a 300 blackout. I've taken hog with this caliber called 6.5 Grendel. It's my personally my favorite caliber. It's very, very accurate. Um, that 6.5 caliber is a, it flies very efficiently through the air. It's a boat tail design. Um, it's still traveling a thousand feet a second um, at a thousand yards. So it's a very wow. long range caliber. 
Um, so there's that's the 6.5 Grendel. There's also some really heavy hitters. Um, there's one called 450 Bushmaster. There's one called 458 Socom. There's one called 50 Beowulf. Um, yeah, like I really like the 450. My brother really likes the 458. My dad really likes the 50 Beowulf. And they are just, you know, they're sledgehammers. Yeah. Short range sledgehammers. So my brother's taking hog with the 458. And it's like hitting them in the side with a sledgehammer, you right. know. My dad is taking a hog with the 50 Beowulf. Um, and I think my brother's also taking a hog with the 450 Bushmaster. Cool. You know, so yeah, there's, they're, they're great hunting. They're, that's, why the, that's what makes them the modern sporting rifle. You can use them for self-defense. You can use them to shoot long range. I love to shoot long range steel. I have, um, on public land, I have a couple places where I have bought these... Um, torso-sized AR-500 steel targets and, like, mounted them to stumps at 500 and 700-yard ranges. And I just love hearing that ting, you know, to pull the trigger and, and like, be able to count to two before you hear the ping come yeah. back. You know, like, I, I love everything about that, cool. that, that long-range target shooting. And then I love to hunt with them as well. Nice. Is it, you see, uh, I, I guess, you know... It, I've been sitting here trying to think about how to ask this question, but all right, let me see here. The modern perception of of AR style rifles is, is in today's society is is usually kind of like your your Facebook responses and social responses about your your lowers is people either love them or yeah, they or hate the, them, or like they're, they're either very them. they're pro or they're anti, right? Yeah. So it really uh, comes down to pro or I don't understand them and therefore okay. I'm afraid of them. Yeah. Okay. So I guess <laughs> yeah, varying levels of that. Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, like I, certainly, you know, anyone that is is um, not pro Second Amendment who might be listening to this, which seems kind of hard to imagine. It's going to be a slim that. population, but we we <laughs> yeah. welcome them, of course. But you know, so they probably would not like that oversimplification. But really, truly, that's what it is. You know, I mean, if it is, it fires around. No different than the same round that your your grandfather fired. In fact, you know if you're using the standard 223 caliber or 556 caliber, it's actually a lot less powerful than what your grandfather used to hunt deer or elk or antelope. Right. Yeah, true. It's even smaller than a 243 round, uh, and much slower. And I and I think a lot of that comes down to aesthetics, right? Don't you think? I mean, the just the visual yeah, of excellent. what you see in the movies and and. And, and we've been sold this, uh, you know, they come up with the term assault weapon, and that's certainly... Yeah, I was going to say that the label AR gets misinterpreted a lot as assault rifle. Yeah, which is an assault rifle or automatic rifle or something. It, um, it actually stood for Armalite. Right. Um, but yeah, uh, more and more, and, you know, it just really comes down to what circle of people you talk to. Like, more and more, I hear it described as MSR, as the modern sporting rifle. And it truly is the modern sporting rifle. It's a do-everything rifle. Um, and, um, and that's why it's so popular. Yeah. Um, but a lot of people like to call it an assault weapon and, and, um, and sort of drum up additional fear about something that, um, is no more lethal than any other firearm out there. That's, yeah. I mean, the, like I said, the aesthetics of it, cause once you get behind any rifle, I mean, yeah, it, you're looking at the same thing. You know, you're looking yeah. down a barrel. You're looking yeah. through a scope, and it's the mentality and will of the person behind it, you mm -hmm. know, more than anything. You know? Sure, they don't I jump up off of the table. And I saw a few stats. I'm from Wisconsin, and 
most people that are listening have listened before, you know that. And uh, I've seen a few posts through my social feeds about, um, you know, this this deer season in Wisconsin, 600,000 deer hunters entered the woods. No one died. Yeah. There was, a, like, I think it was the safest as far as accidental sh- shootings and, you know, just whatever, reports of, 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 of gunfire or whatever that wasn't supposed to be. It was a huge success um, from, from that standpoint. Um, and uh, to your point, so, you know, you have all of these gun owners all in very pro- close proximity of with one another in most cases. I've sat there and sat in my tree opening morning and waited for the sun to come up and, you know, you, you, you know, you're sitting in your stand and you can, you know, it's, it's hardwood. So all the, all the leaves are down and you're looking across and you're like, Oh, there's some orange. There's another guy. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I didn't realize that guy was sitting so close to the line or, you know, <laughs> so, I mean, and it is not uncommon to be gun hunting in some of these Midwestern States and sit in your tree stand and see four other guys, yeah. you know, that are all have loaded rifles. Yeah. And if a buck runs through there, you know, I mean, you can bet your ass you're going to, it's going to open up, you know, but yeah. somehow everybody manages to. Yeah. Wear orange, be safe. It's mm-hmm. really, it's really the mentality behind the person behind the trigger, you know. Mm-hmm. So tell us a few. Oh, so you have the Hellbreaker, which again, you know, we you you described it, and it's it's kind of this homage to. Yeah, if you can picture the P forty Warhawk, the tiger faces or shark, you know, people think of them as shark faces that were painted on aircraft. That it's modeled after that and yeah. looks a lot like that. We have another one that's called Warthog, um, which is a hog, um, and. Um, I would have guessed that. Yeah. I would have. I really would have. <laughs> Use that one a lot for hog hunting. I have I have taken the hog with a warthog, which is kind of kind of fun to do. Cool. Um, we have our most popular design is called the Jack, um, which is a skull type design. Pretty hard to go wrong with skulls. Yeah. So we sold a lot of the Jack, and I think most of the we're most well known for the Jack. It's our most popular design, as I said. It's- Badass. It's it really is freaking cool. badass. It took us a long time to get it right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we 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 nailed it. And like, you know, it So what's a long time? Oh, easily a year. Yeah. With the Jack too, we the way we, we start modeling them first on the computer in a program called SolidWorks. And, you know, when we first had like we felt like we had the model done and with it being a skull, you know, we had gone out and sourced dental models to try and get oh, really? them perfect and, and integrated into our model to make it look right. So that's probably the teeth on the jack are actually based on some dude's real teeth out there. <laughs> well. Unknown. But, you know, when we actually we always print them and we 3D print them first because it's so expensive to take the 3D model on the computer and program that into a machine and then make the fixtures that it's going to need to hold the parts and then actually cut one only to be like, oh, I don't kind of like this about it. So we always 3D print them, the models first. And sure. The first one we printed, when I was looking at it on the computer, it looked great, um, and I was feeling really positive about it. And then we printed one, and it came out looking just like a baby's head. You know, the teeth were <laughs> micro, and it was just like ridiculously small and... I knew we were not going to sell very many uh. of them. And it maybe took us another month or more of taking what those were realistic dimensions, truly realistic dimensions, but just don't translate well on a firearm receiver. Because you're dealing with curved, like a curved piece. Yeah, yeah. It's, you know? Well, it's like a rectangular piece, but yeah, it does. R- right. We're wrapping a face around it and stuff. And 
So those were actual dimensions and just didn't translate very well. And so we spent another month stretching dimensions and stretching, you know, making, elongating certain parts. And we printed the next one. And honest to God, it looked like Gomer Pyle, you know, <laughs> it just looked like a dork. Yeah. And again, it was like, well, okay, it's better, but we're just not going to sell any of yeah. these, you know, or people will laugh about this, you know. So we went back to the drawing board and stretched dimensions and just changed, you know, kept pulling and stretching until it, it we felt like it would be good and eventually we got it right i think it was actually round four by the time we oh, wow. finally got it right printed one and then okay said okay now it's time to make the investment in let's translate what we've made on the computer into cnc code let's build the fixtures and let's make a few of these and see if we can sell them and and we did yeah it was a, it's turned out to be a really popular product and it's got it's sort of um led to a whole bunch of other um, jack-related sales. You know, I have um, a whole Airsoft line business where they have licensed the, all of our designs, but they really were after the jack initially. And it's so we have a whole That's Airsoft cool. line of rifles that are sold worldwide. So there's a lot of people, like, say, that live in China that cannot own a, an American rifle but they can own the airsoft okay and they love having american type guns and the airsoft sure. look very very realistic except they have the orange tip right and um and so we have worldwide sales now on the jack and did someone uh, approach you about that or was that something you went out and and thought it would translate and you know i was thinking of, at the time honestly i was thinking about a guy that we've talked about in the archery industry that has licensed designs to the yeah. different manufacturers and i knew i had something unique enough that, that i was you know we'll always make revenue selling the firearm receiver but but it's even in the firearm space we're, space we're really still a pretty niche market you know there may be something like two million ar-15 sold every year you know if i sell ten thousand receivers in a year i feel like that's like we had an amazing year yeah um and that's about where we try to try to land so even in that space like for us ten thousand receivers is a pretty significant amount but it's just a drop in the bucket into how many ars are out there um i just was looking for another another way to maximize the revenue stream and right. to like get these out to to more people than just people in the united states um so we yeah we did license with a really big uh, name in the airsoft industry it's called evike um and they've they've been really really good to us they they did an excellent job in in reproducing it so they look look good um i gave myself sort of final right of refusal yeah. on what it looked like. So I get to sign off on all the first articles and say, yep, it's good to go for production or no not. No baby's heads. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That yeah. Way. And then honestly, you know, the first models that Evike did, they actually looked quite poor and they knew they looked poor. Um, but I don't know. I, I don't think they would have launched them. But the fact that I had written into the contract that I get to approve the first article, they didn't even ask me to sign for it. You know, it's just like, <laughs> hey, we're going to try again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I want to show you this to show you that we have progress, right. but we know it's not good enough and okay. we're going to try again. And they've actually been just a really great company to work with. Um, and then we also have a sort of an export side of the business where um, like people in Thailand, for example, they cannot own what their military considers a military caliber, so 5.56 five, or 223, they can't own that, but they can own pistol calibers. Okay. Um, and so we have pistol caliber versions of our jack that um, shoot 9mm or 
forty shortened week or three fifty seven sig. Okay, gotcha. Um, and so um, we've seen some seen some export sales as well. Some yes, yeah, nice. it's, it's been a, it's been a good product. Yeah. yeah, definitely got a winner there. The level of detail on that receiver is unreal. Yeah, yeah. That's thank cool. you. And honestly, you know, people hadn't done it before. We have one competitor now that's trying um, not to do a skull, but they have come up with a. Uh, we have one receiver that looks like sort of a Spartan helmet. We call it Overthrow. Um, I sort of think of it as just a generic helmet that can be anything from Boba Fett to Sparta yeah. to whatever you want it to be. Yeah, no, um, it's, it's pretty rad, though. Yeah, I like that one, too. Yeah, so, so we have a competitor that came out with a competing one, but it's almost $100 more expensive than ours. And Wow. Um, you know, they may or may not find some success in the market and is what it is, you know. So the fact that we have a competitor now and uh, tells you that we're doing something right. Yeah, yeah for, for sure. sure. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so what, I guess, you know, what, <laughs> well, I, I always want to know, like, what, what are the ideas that didn't make like the, you know, like the production floor, <laughs> right? Oh, I, I well, I'll tell you this. I have people write me all the time asking me for, you know, a gorilla, a wolf, a tiger's face, sure. a crusader helmet. <laughs> um, we've took the liberty snake, of snake, uh, dragon, everything. We, we maybe suggest, uh, Nate came up with this one, unicorn. That's, <laughs> That was high on his list. Oh, the one that I've actually seen three times this week is Trump. I wrote that oh, yeah. down. I wrote the Trump. People <laughs> want a Trump receiver, you know, and like I, 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 we could do it. Uh, um, and we probably would sell a lot of them. Might have some licensing issues there. Oh, uh, I, 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 speaking of Jack Reach, so one of the things that we, we made is like, Kate, we don't ever sell a second and we never sell a blem. Um, but we did have some, we have had the occasion where we screw up in making these things. And what we decided to start doing with them was cut them in half and just sell you the skull part. Or we, for a while, we we're just giving them away. And now we sell them for 50, 60 bucks. It's more of like a way to recoup money. But they're like, they make really great pen holders or business card holders. Okay. Um, and it's the kind of thing you can set on your desk. Like, you know, if you buy one of our skull receivers, you know, it may be your favorite rifle, but only the people that are seeing what's in your safe actually get to enjoy that with you. Yeah. But if you have what we were calling scrap jacks, <laughs> if you have a scrap jack sitting on your desk, like people are seeing it all the time. So it's, it was actually a really great uh, marketing thing. And, and you talking about Trump and licensing, <laughs> Donald Trump Jr. has a scrapjack on his desk. Oh, oh really? Yeah. Nice. Like, I don't know if he's using it as a pen holder or a business card, but he's <laughs> yeah. showing me a picture of it. That's cool. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I, f I feel pretty good about that. So we could we could do a Trump one, and honestly, we I, I know that I could make money on it, but there's there, it, it sort of crosses this. That's lowbrow. I feel it's a little low brand. Yeah, it crosses like a little this, bit. Yeah, you know? I was, that's what I was gonna say. Like, I feel like it would hurt the brand more than anything. Like, yep, I sure would like to have my wallet be a little bit fatter because we sold a whole bunch of Trump lowers. <laughs> um, and and if and if they got mad at us and wanted to like fight us oh, over licensing, it would be even better, Absolutely. right? Because it would just drive more marketing for it. But but I feel like it would have the I feel like it could have the impact of making our brand into a joke. Yeah, you know. And so for that reason, we've never done it. You know? Yeah, yeah, that it's be better off with the unicorn. The uni yeah. <laughs> the puppy. We've got some others. I've got we're we get approached by some pretty big businesses. Um I was even working on one for Ruger for a while, but their corporate guys, you know, there were some people inside Ruger that were really excited about what we were working on for them. And then there was someone at the top that was just like 
frick this. We're, yeah. We're out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so that died. But there, we're working on another one right now for, a, I'll just say, a company that's bigger than Sharps Bros. Okay. In the firearm industry that okay. uh, we've actually been working on for a couple of months. And um, it's it's getting closer and closer. So I'm excited about getting that out there. Nice. Yeah, for sure. And Good deal. Obviously busy. So, um couple more things on on this side of the, of the business and then we wanted to talk to you a little bit about just some more recreational stuff that that uh, we follow you on instagram and stalk you here and there and see you, you know you get out and get after it with your boys so want to talk a little bit about that so one, one thing um that you know we talk about and again you know when you whatever whatever you're into you know there's always there's a vernacular and a slang and a you know kind of a a way that you talk about your profession or not necessarily profession, but your, your, your uh, passion. Right. Yeah. So, you know, being in the archery industry, we, you know, usually we can spot kind of a guy or gal that is trying to fake their way through a conversation. Um, you know, just in, 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 as far as their knowledge on the sport. Yeah, sure. Um, and usually that comes in archery when they like mimic how to draw a bow, you know, like, we kind of all have our own little ways of how to like because yeah. you do it if done it a freaking million times right and yeah. so you like oh there he was you know and I you know I wait till he put his head down and I and I drew back on him and you like well, and you watch that person do it and you're like okay he's legit right and uh, and then we've worked with people some of the people we've kind of talked about before we turn this on and you know they do that and you're like oh this guy doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about yeah he's never shot a bow in his life or he's <laughs> it's maybe been once you know. Um, so anyway, so you're gonna ask me, are there si- is similar there what's things? what's like that dead giveaway thing? Like when somebody's talking, trying to talk guns with you, um, uh, you know, for me, it's not necessarily what they. I mean, they may give off signals based on what they would say. I guess you know, maybe talking about a caliber that's not suitable for a certain size weapon. But for okay. me, a lot of it is is the face to face. Like, so I was showing you guys guns earlier. If either one of you had ever swept me with that with the rifle barrel, even though we had talked about it ahead of time that everything's unloaded, oh, yeah. if either one of you had swept me with that barrel, then I would just know, like, okay, we're just at a different level here between how we feel about firearms. Like, even though we've talked about them being all unloaded, um, if you Full had disclosure, done that, I know what that means, but could you just explain so it? So swept means, like, if you had crossed, if you had pointed the gun at me in any way, you know, um, then that yeah. would have that would have put me in, a, I, you know, I wouldn't have been mad or anything like right. that. I would have corrected you. Yeah. Um, but then, it, you know, then I would have known what level of of, of experience that we were yeah. talking with. I wouldn't be thinking that you're an idiot or anything. Just like you grew up with a different level of skill or discipline, or you just haven't been around firearms enough to know, or your dad didn't yell at you enough as a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's sort of that's how my boys are now. I certainly have had to do a lot of correction because I'm, I am raising two really young shooters. So I've both, my boys have now taken hog and antelope and, uh, we got into duck hunting. Actually we got into duck hunting because, um, when they, some of their first hunting experiences was when I was hunting, um, with my bow, my invasion bow, trying to take deer, but also trying to be a dad and doing spot and stock, you know, and I can't take them up in a in a stand, really. Um, I didn't, at least the stands I didn't have were not like two person stands. And I don't know if you've ever seen what it would be like to have a five or six year old in the stand. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, 
better have a Game Boy or something. <laughs> but, you know, the spot and stock was so difficult. And actually, all th- I've only taken three deer with a bow, and those are the only things I've taken with a bow besides turkey. Um, the, the only big sort of medium-sized game, I guess. I took all three of those with one of my boys in tow, and they would be, you know, six or eight at the time. Wow. But that That's was awesome. so difficult that I started thinking, like, man, I... One, I was also feeling like I need to preserve some hunting land because I grew up hunting 5,000-acre ranches that we had access to through someone who worked at a timber company, was friends of the family and stuff, and not realizing how lucky we were to hunt on, you know, just have amazing hunting property until such time as I'm trying to find hunting property for my boys, and it's, it's really hard. So I went in with some other guys, and we bought 30 acres near Corvallis, um, and that for the sole purpose of hunting ducks there. So we plant corn in the summer. We flood the corn as the season comes around. And, uh, and then we hunt ducks on it. And one of the reasons I did that is because it makes it way easier to hunt with the boys. Yeah. You know? And now, like before they were carrying rifles, now my youngest carries a single shot 410 and my, my oldest carries a single shot 20 gauge. Um, and when they're carrying, I, I just leave my, my shotgun at home. But... Um, in the early days when we were just sitting in the blind, like, you know, ducks are not as keen as a blacktail is. Um, and when you're hidden in a blind, you know, and our blinds are big enough that we can move around in them and eat donuts and drink coffee and stuff like <laughs> yeah. that, you know, and still get out early and experience yeah. the field and stuff like yeah. that. So we've really been into duck hunting the last, I guess, five years or so. Yeah. Partly because I was trying to preserve land and then find a place where I could hunt with some kids that are young. And now actually just this year, you know, last year, my oldest who's 13 now, but was 12 at the time, took his first duck. Um, he's already taken a duck this year. And, and my youngest, who's about 10 and a half, um, he just shot a really nice mallard, his first mallard with a four ten awesome. shotgun. Yeah. And we practiced cool. all summer of just shooting skeet. I would just stand behind them. And they would just shoot one right yeah. after the other. While one was loading, the yeah. other was shooting. And I'm, right and here I'm in back town. there. That's impressive. Yeah. Throwing <laughs> ski. Yeah. I could do that with turkeys in town. Yeah. I have not. Yeah. That's cool. So speaking, I know Nate had drummed up a couple of questions, you know, regarding. So we, we live in, so we live in Eugene, Oregon, which a uh, fairly liberal town. Yeah. That's probably putting it lightly. <laughs> yeah. That is putting it lightly. Um, you know, what's it been like for you as a dad and, you know, doing what you do? I watched, uh, Nate and I watched uh, Lord of War with Nicolas Cage before we came. So we want to really prep ourselves for, <laughs> for this conversation. Yeah, yeah I'm just like Nick <laughs> yeah, Cage. I knew it. I just pegged you like that. Um, <laughs> but no, I mean, what's it like to, you know, for them, especially being teenagers? I mean, I don't know. We're We're not too far off in age. It's like, I remember walking in to my high school with a gun in, in its case and I was giving it to a buddy and, and granted I lived in kind of rural Wisconsin, but like nobody checked up. Like I walked in the school with an unloaded yeah. gun and like, obviously that's not happening today. I mean, but what's it like for your kids and the conversations you've had to have with your kids? And obviously they have a passion for the sport. They, they know what you do. They know the influence that you have on the industry. And I mean, yeah, it's it's a delicate balance now, I guess, because yeah. I was sort of like you. Like, I'm 45 now, and I, I went to Marshfield High School in Coos Bay. And I drove to school with a rifle hanging in the back of my pickup, you know, in the window of my pickup. And I was that was not uncommon in the least, and we would go hunting after school, you know. Um, 
And there was a time when I actually went to school, not with even a hunting rifle in there, but we were going to go shoot after school, like just target shoot after school. And so I had an AK hanging in my window, you know, (laughs) and still people were like, they maybe looked a little different back then, but it was not like alarming, you know, because we just didn't have to worry about the same thing. So my boys know that, um, I mean, obviously they know their dad's in the firearm business and, and they wear Sharps Rose gear and I think they're quite proud of it. And they know that the company was actually named after them, you know, but they have to be very careful and go into schools and, 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 you know, I'm, their friends know that, that we're, I'm in the firearm business and, um, and they talk about hunting and, you know, when, when they take time off of school to go to, you know, hunt antelope in Wyoming or something, the teachers know why they're gone and ask them what's up when they get back. But they also can't wear some of our, our gear, you know, our t-shirts that have an AK-47 on them or a t-shirt that has an AR-15 on them. I don't know if they actually would get kicked out of school, but the the schools are so sensitive about it that they're very sensitive about it, you know. Like, they'll wear a Sharps Rose hat that has our logo and says Sharps Rose, and they're super proud to say that that's their same last name and that that's the family business. Um, but um, but they've sort of been really indoctrinated into in into not doing it. I mean, people have gotten kicked out of school for making a freaking Pop-Tart look like a gun. Right. You know? Yeah. So it's, we live in very, very sensitive times right now. Yep. So it's a, it's a balance. Yeah. I can only imagine. Mine's five years old now. And just the, you know, the things that I see at, at his preschool, um, you know, it's just, I don't know, it's just different, it's different times and the things that you have to be aware of and the amount of, you know, uh, just calculations that you kind of have to run on a daily basis, you know, like, uh, again, I get more of in concern for them and, and, and what they're doing and, you know, what they're portraying, what's being portrayed to them. It's, yeah, it's definitely a different time. So I would imagine that that adds another layer, especially kind of where they are you yeah. know, as, as an age. You know, the way, one way that I would compare it is that, like, I went to Oregon State, but because the boys are growing up in Eugene, like, you know, well, one of them's a big Oregon State fan, but, mm-hmm. you know, the other one is a huge Duck fan. It's, yeah. like, impossible. For, <laughs> like, he, I, he grew him up here. So yeah. the... I can see, you know, if I if if we weren't deliberate about it, it would be really easy to fall prey to whatever whatever liberal arts the schools are teaching, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, they're they're quite common discussions. I take the kids to school every day, and we listen to AM radio on that short drive in, and there's almost always something to talk about on there, whether whether it's you know the budget that just got put out or some something that happened in the news. So there's always lots of talking points and. You know, just try to be almost like what the news should be, which is, you know, share both sides of the story rather than um, a very biased side. Yeah. You know? Yeah. No, but you've got a line of communication open for sure. Yeah. Which yeah. seems to me like a lot of people, like you mentioned before, are just not familiar, uneducated, or flat out scared about it. And then Yeah. Most of those folks are fairly unwilling to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, or educate themselves or whatever. They just have a set opinion and you know, it is what it is and they're not interested in Yeah. Or they see a firearm and it actually just instills a bunch of fear and they would never even dare touch it for it might blow up on them or something. <laughs> right. You know, like like uh if you're raising your kids that way, you're really doing them a a major disservice. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah you can definitely tell uh, I mean, adults that get in 
in it, get into firearms later that never grew up with them. It's interesting to see how timid and like slow the learning curve is as compared to if you, you know, if, if you just grew up around it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 It becomes a lot more innate if you've, if you were, if you grew up around it. An interesting thing that we're seeing now is in the firearm space where, you know, I imagine if I asked either of you guys your first introduction to firearms, it was a, your father or an uncle or something like that, you know, mm -hmm. more and more people's first introductions to firearms are video games. Video games are creating, are replicating, you know, without licensing fees, they're replicating yeah. our firearms um, down to the sound and cyclic rate and, you know, trying to make them exact of what, of what real firearms are like, you know, um, at least displayed in the game. And more and more people, like, that's their first introduction to firearms. Like, they'll be, they sure. can come in and be quite knowledgeable about the type and the caliber and sure. the cyclic rate and yeah. it, the, the quote-unquote damage it may be able to do in the video game, I guess. But, <laughs> um, but then not really be experienced in handling yeah. them or really know anything about. Yeah, you don't um, have to worry about sweeping anybody on a video game. Yeah, no, yeah. No, quite, the the quite, quite the opposite. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah but it's kind of, you know, like, it actually is a, it's a focus area for us. Um, it, and kind of interesting, like, the some of the bigger game companies, like Valve is a huge one. Um, they create these games that have, are, have modern-day firearms in them, but they want nothing to do with an actual firearm manufacturer. Right. The one place I found um, that is not, that way is Ubisoft. And so we've been talking to Ubisoft trying to get them to use some of our designs in their games because gonna they're ask super you, unique. Have and you seen any of your stuff pop up or at least like replicas of No, I've only been working motors. with them for the last six months or so and it's the kind of thing where it may take a couple of years before yeah. it shows up in a Tom Clancy game or something your like that. Your kid's got to be jacked about that. It would. I would be jacked about yeah, that. Yeah, right? You know, because... You know, you start seeing the jack rifle in a game, and more and more people, their first introduction right. to firearms is yeah. is the video game. And then when they come of age and they're ready to buy a firearm, I want them buying the jack. You know? Yeah. I feel like like Bill Gates used to say, you know, one PC for every desktop. Like, I want at least one jack in every safe. Yeah. So. Yeah. I know you guys both have safes without jacks. We, so we're jackless, as that. they True. say. We're jackless. <laughs> <laughs> we'll Couldn't say the same we'll about John. have to work John on that. If he was here. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no. So quick, um, I mean, just like side fun fact, speaking of Bill Gates, you work for Microsoft. Yeah, right. I spent from maybe, I guess I started to work there in 2000, um, and I, this was back when Microsoft made rifles. Most people don't even know that. <laughs> yeah. <so. laughs> I worked in the hardware space. Uh, and so it, was the, it started off as this really small group that designed and manufactured or had manufactured and marketed and sold the mouse and keyboard side of the business. And then it grew to the Xbox business, and then that then grew into what's now the Surface business. So I've spent time on computer mice, computer keyboards, um, so what, Xbox, what is your, Xbox accessories, okay. and Surface laptops. So what is, what, what is your degree in then? I have a business degree. Oh, I'm yeah. super mechanically inclined, so I like anything to do with that, you know, and so that's kind of helped me out in the business. But at Microsoft, I was a program manager, and for a long time I was in charge of um, overseeing a bunch of their manufacturing operations. So it started off as overseeing their mouse operation, my first job with them in 2000. Um, and at the time, they were making a million computer mice a week. 
It was oh, like shit. 13 wow. 40-foot high cube containers filled with mice leaving China <laughs> every single week. You know? wow. I have like almost or actually a little bit more than two years of just on-the-ground time in China, spending a lot of time in, in Chinese factories helping them get products launched out the door, you know, again, like from mouse to Xbox controllers and consoles to Surface-related stuff. And that's actually one of the things that sort of propelled me into you know, our own manufacturing business, making sure that, you know, we were, it was 100% U.S. made. Because I've seen many, many products get made overseas, you know, millions upon millions of dollars worth of products being made overseas when I feel like we've kind of lost that um, that American manufacturing skill, you know. But actually, Botech is, is sort of a diamond in the rough in that way in that they manufacture, they have this local manufacturing plant where everything, like, you know, is designed there and then, you know, the parts are brought in and turned into a bow and str strings are made there and then they're out the door they're boxing out the door like that is becoming more and more rare, you know, uh, but it's something that we that, you know, we model ourselves sort of off that Bowtech way one to be able to manufacture everything in the United States and um, create U.S. jobs and U.S. manufacturing jobs, U.S. sales jobs, marketing sales, mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff. It's cool. So that being said, um, I know one thing in in the archery, on the archery side of things, the consumer base was very critical of things that were made overseas, um, for, especially with the bows, right? Like to come out with a, uh, a bow that was made in China or Vietnam or something like that would have been and would be in my, unless something's changed, which I highly doubt, would not go over well. I mean, all the bows, PSE, Matthews, Hoyt, I mean, there's speculation on some of this stuff, but for the most part, all that stuff is made in the USA. Um, on your side... His final of, assembly. It, yeah, yeah. And, and even so, I think most of those, and I can't speak yeah, 100%. Sometimes the trick will be they'll source the parts in Asia and then do the final assembly here. I've, uh, some big-name companies do that in all different spaces, not just archery or firearms. Um, they'll source their aluminum, for example, from China and get it really cheap there and okay. then, or have it forged in China. So it's, uh, it's like sort of an 80 or 90% net shape and then do okay. the final machining here. But that's not something that we would even consider. Okay. So I get my, my question is, are the consumers as passionate about their, where they're, yeah. okay. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. We, I would, one, it's just not something that is in us to entertain. But if we did entertain it, we would rightfully just just be thrown to the curb yeah. quite quickly. Yeah. You know, and we should be. You know, <laughs> if, if we were to do that, then that's, uh -huh. you know, that's how it should be. Huawei. Huawei are Huawei Sharps Brothers. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All of our aluminum is sourced in, in the United States. And, and then we use uh, our manufacturing facilities, of course, U.S.-based. And we're distributing... Um, to dealers across the nation, so it's a it's a very uh, U.S. made, U.S. centric business. We do export products, but it's not like we make them overseas and and ship them in those other countries. They're made here and exported here. We get you some know, the other way for change. Here. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, it's sort of you know it doesn't make that big of a dent in the in the whole <laughs> import export business, but you know it makes a little bit of a difference. Mm -hmm. Makes you feel good. Sleep better at night. Though, yeah. For sure. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's cool. 
All right. Well, we had a couple questions just about, you know, you know, you know, enough about guns and, and firearms, but I know Nate's been following you a little closely and wanted to ask you a couple questions about some of the stuff when you do get a chance to break away and, you know, stuff that you like, you mentioned duck hunting. Um, you got a pretty sick raft down downstairs. Yeah. Um, rafting is like one of my, well, what's your yeah. question going to be about? I was going to ask you just kind of in general, what else you, do you like to do outside? But I wanted to ask you about rafting too specifically. Rafting in the road. It, so. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I would love to take you guys down the road. Like I I do some guiding on the Rogue River. So the Rogue River has, is my favorite river. It's an Oregon river. It's um, got this section that's about 42 miles long. That's the, considered the wild and scenic section where you cannot take a motorized craft through that section. And there's no roads really in and out. I mean, there's some pretty remote things. Like if you had to take a Jeep, you know, there might be a Jeep trail or something. But generally speaking, if you set your raft or boat in at the beginning of this 42-mile section, which is typically done in three or four days to get through the 42 miles, like there's only one way out, and that's to go through it. And that really has become just one of my favorite things to do. We started off just running Tahiti's when I was camping with the family around um, Agnes and stuff. And now, like, you know, I like to backpack and spend a lot of time in the High Cascade Lakes, or not a lot of time, but I try to get into the High Cascades at least once or twice a summer. It's one of the reasons I really like Oregon. It's just, and especially Eugene, besides, besides being sort of behind enemy lines, you know, <laughs> um, you know, we're an hour from the Umpqua River, we're an hour from um, the Willamette Pass, or pretty close to just get past the Cascades. Yeah. Um, the Rogue River is only really a couple, two and a half hours away. Yeah. Um, some some really beautiful land, and so the nice thing about rafting is. You know, I have a 15-foot, 6-inch raft that holds a cooler and dry boxes, and I can put propane in there and tents, and you can just – it's like glamping almost, yeah. you know? Yeah. But um, it's kind of like – to me, it's the perfect vacation because it is it is a wild section of the river with, you know, class 4 and one class yeah. 5 rapid on it. And um, pretty you got to be water. on your toes, you know? Um, so where did you learn – I mean – there had to be a first time, right, that you went down there solo? Yeah, I went – the first time I did – I went down um, the Rogue and started learning it, I went with someone else was guiding it, but I asked them to let me row my own raft. Okay. And I sort of learned to to, to row a raft or row a boat in that, that case. That section's not a section you would want to try and figure out by yourself. Yeah. And the nice part about the Rogue is it actually gets – I mean, there's one really, there's a major falls the first day, but that you have to navigate around, not through. But the rest of the time, it's like day two and day three get progressively harder. And then like the last day you go through this, this rapid called Blossom Bar that typically kills people every year. But you have sort of this run up to it. And if, you know, if your skills aren't up to it or you don't understand how to run it or you don't feel like you could run it because you have to make some really critical moves, like an S turn right in the middle of really high flowing water. If you can't do it, then, you know, you can walk around and someone else can take your boat for you. Um, But that's how I got started in it. And, yeah, you know, it's one of those things where your cell phone doesn't work. You get in the boat. You're on vacation, but you're working. You know, you're having to read the river. I I just like everything about that. It's it's my favorite thing. My favorite pastime besides hunting and fishing and stuff is getting out on the river. And your kids dig it? Yeah. 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 Yeah, the boat is big enough that it'll hold my wife and two boys up front and 
this last summer we went through, um, my, we also took a, an inflatable Tahiti through. And so in some places where they were just class one or class two rapids, my 13 year old was able to, to run those. Okay. Like he ran the whole, once we were past Blossom Bar, I think he ran the entire river out from Blossom Bar out, oh, cool. which is just generally class one or class two. Yeah. So, um, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a really good time. Yeah. You ever, ever had any close calls? We know Jake and I know a couple guys. The last couple of years, two different guys swamped their drift boats. Um, this past summer, I had to help someone. They got stranded on a boat and had to uh, do a Z line or Z drag to like pull their boat off. And um, someone went in the river that we had to like. He was underwater for quite a while, like, oh. and, and then then actually got evac'd out. Like knew he was not going to be able to make really? the rest of the trip. Oh shit! Um, but um, uh, I don't know. I've definitely been when for Blossom Bar, Blossom Bar is the one I always think of because it is a class five, but like rapid wise, it's what you would consider a class three, but consequences, it's definitely a yeah. five. It's very technical. Yeah. It's a very technical one. And I've actually, I always have made my kids walk around it partly because a couple times I've gotten high sided on a rock and it will take the boat and and tilt it up 45 or 50 degrees, like in an instant. Wow. And people have to get high side. And if you got three people sitting up in the front of your boat, it's almost impossible for everyone to get to the high side. Sure. If you got three people up there. And yeah. so I've, I've made them always walk around that sort of to their dismay, but you know, <laughs> I'm the dad and yeah. they walk around it. And, and a couple times, you know, I've been high sided on a big elephant sized rock out there and, and been able to get off of it just fine because of the, the, the raft was still nimble and I wasn't worrying about a 10-year-old rolling off the side. Yeah. Sure. So, but generally, um, not too many. I don't, not, not a close call. Can I think yeah. of a lot more close calls in diving than in rafting. Yeah. Oh, really? At least rafting, you're, you're typically breathing air, you know. You're above. Yeah. I, uh, Is that like equipment malfunctions occur yeah, give when us you're a dry, couple of diving? Close calls. Uh, well, I mean, I, I had to recover a body once on a dive when I was in college. Um, someone just ran out of air and didn't come up. And by the time we found her, she was dead. And uh, so I've I've been really close to some pretty significant um, life-impacting things, like find her, get her back to the boat. Her husband's in the boat. Oh, Coast Guard helicopter comes flying over above because someone in the boat had called that we needed help. Were you yeah. diving with her? Or? Uh, she wasn't my partner, but we were on the same, you know, we, we had left the same boat. Oh, wow. She was diving with her husband, and I was diving with a friend of mine. What the heck? Um, and my, the friend and, my, and I came back from our dive, and I remember the husband popped up when his dive was done, and we said, you know, where's your wife? And he looked back, and he's like, she's right behind me. And then she just wasn't. You know, and they, we ended up talking to police like months later about it and they had analyzed her dive computer and she had come all the way up to like three feet. What? Three feet from the oh, surface. Man. You gotta be kidding but me. But she ran out of air and panicked and couldn't get her weight belt off and she literally probably could see the light of the surface oh, wow. and sunk all the way back down. God. Son of a bitch. And then in, in Seattle, I had done some, some sort of similar... Because in these wrecks that we were diving in Seattle were, most of them were over 200 feet deep. There was maybe only 10 or 12 people in Seattle that could dive that deep. Um, and so I got, I used to get some contract work 
like sometimes it would be insurance or sometimes it would be something else where they needed um, help getting something off the bottom. And in one case, it was a body. But um, I've done a little bit of work like that. So, yeah, diving has been a lot more. Wow. I actually sort of stopped diving when I had kids because I remember having this conversation with my wife where I'm like, you know, I think I'm going to be diving less and less. And and she looked at me and she was like, you know, well, why? And I'm like, well, you know, just the impact if something goes wrong. Like, you know, I want the kids growing up without a dad, you know, because stuff does go wrong, you know. I mean, you can be an excellent diver and um, even be able to train on how to deal with malfunctions. But, you know, sometimes you get what's called a stack tolerance. And if a bunch of things stack up the wrong way, it can go catastrophic really fast. And I remember I actually had an argument with my wife about it. She's like, what do you mean all this time you thought you could die and just like leave me and I'd be fine, you know, but now yeah, that we have kids, that's how you're not diving anymore. Like, yeah, exactly. That's that. You would have found uh, someone else. Yeah. I don't want them finding someone You're going to be fine. Yeah. 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 But rafting is, you know, the rogue and the other things we do, we prep quite a bit, you know, we, we track our progress mile by mile and rapid by rapid. And oh, really? each rapid I have marked out, like, you know, this one run the right shoot and pull left at the bottom or look for this rock at the bottom and stuff. If you guys have never floated it, we should definitely plan some. Yeah, it's man. Just a that'd, ton be of awesome. fun. that'd be awesome. That'd be great. It'd be nice if the, if like the, that, that class five was at the beginning. So you could kind of like relax and enjoy the rest of the week. <laughs> now, you know, yeah. I've actually gotten, so I used to be that way too. Like day three, um, or day two, I would be, my family would comment about how stressed out I'd be towards the end of the day because yeah. I knew in the morning that I had to get through Blossom Bar. Yeah. And as soon as we got through Blossom Bar, it was like I had two beers in me or something. Yeah. It was just static all yeah. of a sudden. Sure. Because, you know, I'm not that way when I don't have my family with me, but there are, there are a couple of places. Yeah. You know, there's one big long run called Mule Creek Canyon, which is just prior to Blossom Bar which is this crazy narrow restriction. Like your oars touch the rock on either really? side at the I canyon. I saw your video so narrow. Yeah. And there are some huge holes in there. And if you avoid them, you're going to be fine. If you get sucked into one of them, your boat is for sure going to flip. Mm -hmm. And then you're going to ride the next 10 or 15 minutes down some super high flow. And, and you know, your life jacket is not going to be strong enough to keep you above all the time. Like it will right. suck you under and then pop yeah. you back out and suck you back under and pop Ugh. you back out. You could out tell from the video you posted it's the crazy hydraulics in that section. Yeah. You just watch the way how the water moves on the surface and you just Yeah. You know that the currents underneath are just Yeah, there's one unreal. there's one particular rapid inside Mule Creek Canyon that's called Coffee Pot. And in like the 2,000 cubic foot a second range, they call it the terrible twos. And it really just looks like, it looks like oh. if you can imagine a coffee percolating. Yeah. And it sucks you in there and you can be bouncing around the top and all of a sudden it's just like a hand comes from underwater and will just start pulling your boat under. And you got to be, you got to be on it and pulling yourself out of that. And there's no way out. Like you're going to hit coffee pot. And it's sort of the rapid will breathe in and out. You know, it's like sometimes right now it's calm and the next second it's not. It's breathing in and out and, and in terms of its severity. So and there's no way to pass it by completely. You've, you've no, got to go no, in it to impossible. some degree. Yeah. It's only like 12 feet wide right there. So oh, it's, wow. it's, you know, you've got a 15 foot boat that won't fit through a sideways. So you're going through it. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's still a ton of fun. <laughs> yeah. Man, we're kicking the pace. Sure. Yeah. Very exhilarating. And then we do, like, the other thing is, like, we spend, we have a, a 
my parents have a place on the Umpqua River down by Elkton. Yeah. And it's just phenomenal smallmouth bass fishing. Yeah. And that's about the only fishing I do now. Like I sort of, it's sort of hard for me to sit in a boat all day for one, one salmon. Yeah. But smallmouth, I can take quickly. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Smallmouth, I can take a canoe out and hit 10 and, you know, 30 minutes later, come back and have a Coors Light or something. On good days, we fished that quite a few times too. Yeah. Yeah. It's like literally every cast for the first half hour. Yeah. Or if it's bad, you know, especially when I'm fishing with the kids, if it's bad, we just flip to worms and and sit to a rock and it's just like, it's a ton of fun for them, you know? Yeah. It's beautiful down there. I mean, we won't air any of this part because we won't want anybody else to go down there. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, All right. So we're going to finish this up. We like to do, uh, I think we've actually missed this last couple episodes just because of our uh, long-windedness or whatever it may be, but we like to do uh, Would You Rather. And uh, John, in spirit, sent these over. Um, oh, great. Probably from, probably from the bathroom. Right. Yeah, Poor he's, guy. He's, uh, he's been living on the toilet. Yeah, he's, he's not feeling well. So, um, <laughs> All right, so these are kind of directed towards you. I like those last Towards me? Sharpsy, yeah. Um, I you can do rapid fire, too. Yeah, there's a couple other things I want to ask. So uh, would you rather have dinner with Samuel Colt or hunt one day with Teddy Roosevelt? Oh, I guess I would hunt. Like yeah. 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 <laughs> okay. All right. Good deal. Uh, you got these queued up too? No. Uh, another one was uh, assuming it doesn't have sentimental value to you. If you're lucky enough to own, I'm sure you've got your favorite rifle, but if you're lucky enough to own your your dream automobile too, which would you rather be forced to sell? It's got a nice truck down there. Huh. Yeah. Yeah, I actually kind of have my dream vehicle right now. Like I'm not I'm not like a sports car guy, but I have I have one of these Gen 2 Raptors, and it's like, it's like I don't I don't have any vehicle envy. It's pretty people. nice. So now, am I going to be in this question? I'm forced to sell this vehicle. Yeah, or, or your or your favorite rifle. One, which one? Oh man, well, and we got to take sentimental value. So we we're lucky enough yeah. to see some of your pieces, and you, like your grandpa's gun. I mean, we wouldn't put, we wouldn't put that up there. But yeah. Like maybe well, you say like, I have a couple that are like, you know, my grandfather right. bought them in 1924 and like, I'm just, you know, I would get, I guess I would, it's not worth the, what the Raptor's worth, but I wouldn't like give that up to anyone, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so that aside, yeah, we'll take that out of the equation. Uh, I don't know. That's a hard question. <laughs> that's that's what, why we play that's the why game. We try to, <laughs> that's how we try to come up with them. <laughs> Ah, the vehicle. I'd sell the vehicle, I guess. I, the, it's hard for it's impossible for me to take the sentimental out of the right. firearms because that's half of it. You right. Know? Yeah. Sure. Otherwise, they're just you know, a few thousand bucks, and you know, then I, then it's a lot easier to let that go. If there wasn't the sentimental value, I'd let the let the vehicle go. Okay. This is a John special here, Johnny. We appreciate you. Would you rather get shot in the chest, bulletproof vest, of course, or with a beanbag gun? To the groin. <laughs> <laughs> God dang, man. Yeah. He's brutal. Uh, I would, frick. So the beanbag, you don't have the, you don't have any protection? I mean, I give you a pair of boxers. And let's, maybe, well, no, let's say you got a cup on. Okay. If I yeah, had, the, if I had get, the cup, I'd take the beanbag. A beanbag bag. round to the, even with a cup. If I had the cup, I still think ruined. I would take the beanbag, though. I'm like cringing even thinking oh, about it because dude. the idea of like, the Kevlar or whatever not being effective. Oh, man. Uh, one oh, of them right. has a chance of death. Yeah. The other one has, you know, a certain chance of, they have, both have certain chance of pain, absolute chance of pain. One of them has 
accidental death associated oh. with it. So I have yeah. to go with the logical thing. Yeah. And even, though, you got even though my nuts are involved. You got your boys already. So <laughs> Yeah, my True, family's all here. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> awesome. Well, cool, man. Anything else you want to... Okay, so website is... And dude, you have a you have a massive following on Instagram. Pretty good, yeah. Over I mean, six hundred well, people follow you. Yeah, <laughs> wait, that's it. So <laughs> well, six post yeah. pictures of beautiful guns all day. Yeah, I think yeah, we're no coming doubt. up on seventy thousand yeah. right now for Sharps Bros. Um, uh, my J Sharps account's not not is it's not anywhere, <laughs> you know. But it's not sharing the too cool many pictures guns of then. you and you're holding your Coors Light. Yeah, doing yeah. a jujitsu pose was yeah. probably yeah exactly. It's not pulling as many. Followers. Yes, for some reason. I don't get it either, I need to show, man. show I more think it's leg great. or something. I'd like it. I comment, you know, repost. <laughs> um, okay, but seriously, if you're, even if you're a casual gun shooter, you know, and when I, I say gun shooter, because if you shoot a shotgun or if you've ever shot a, a Red Rider BB gun, that's good enough. Go to sharpsbrothers.com and check. I mean, this stuff is... I. Cause again, like I, you know, I like guns. I have, I have a, a case full and I, and I, some of them are sentimental. They're from my grandpa, but I got on your website <laughs> and I immediately was like, to Nate's point, I was making a list. I'm like, I, I gotta, I gotta get yeah, one. Yeah. They're, it, yeah. They're like nothing you've seen before. If you haven't yeah. seen our stuff before. Um, and then we have a bunch of different flavors of them. So like, hopefully we've, we have a flavor that sort of speaks to you, you know? You bet. And look for the Trump, uh, soon enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Someone will do it. Probably not us. Uh, <laughs> that's a good call. <laughs> Your Cerakote guys would have fun with that design. Though. Oh, man. oh my Very gosh. They would. Yeah. Orange. orange yes. Yellow. And yellow. <laughs> yeah. They would. Yeah. We'd for sure get the hair in there. Yeah. We'd mess that up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Nate, are you got anything else? No, we appreciate your time, John. John, thanks so much. Yeah, no problem, man. Thanks for coming over. You bet.